Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. For those of you that have been with us for the last hour, we're just back. We're just back here. We're just back doing another show because why? I love to do it. I love being a student. And I love uh, that we get to connect with all of you. As I've said a million times, you're the best audience on the planet. And, you know, we collect information from you. We find out what it is that you want. We don't do it like Google, but we ask you. And we ask you about what are the shows you want to hear more of? What are the things that are on your mind? You know, how do we have a conversation about spirituality in, in, in your, the way that you phrase it, spirituality, that digs deep from history, right, but also gets us to the unmet needs of where we are today? That's what Rabbi Rami Shapiro is joining me here today to talk about. You know, look, I learned something many years ago, and Benny will talk to this because Benny was my producer then. I have Benny and Micah joining me here today. It was a very interesting journey for me. And gosh, Benny, I don't know how many years back we have to go when the three amigos asked, can we do a show on your network, Pat? You know, we, can we come on your network? Can we, can we come on and talk? And I thought, of course, you can come on and talk. Why not? And the three amigos, Rabbi Ted, Brother Jamal, and Pastor Bob. And they came on the show, and it was an amazing show. It was just incredible. I mean, this was a representation of how I grew up now and what experience I had in my life. And they went on to write a book. And the book was Interfaith. There was an Interfaith. The show was called Interfaith. It was the three amigos. I wrote a book. But what I loved about this was it brought to light the idea of learning lessons, respect, integrity, wisdom. I mean, I could go on. But it left behind some of the things that people like me may have grew up with that just didn't make sense to me. Like I never understood how one day I had to do penance for eating meat on Friday and then that rule changed. And I asked my priest, can I have the penance back? Can you give me all those Hail Marys and Our Fathers that I had to do when I was eating the meat on a Friday because I didn't know that my stepmom actually they were not fried clams. They were chitlin. So I did. I went in as a young, a teenager, and I walked into the confessional, right? And I, I just said, I have great news. I can get these Hail Marys and Alfarthas back. 
I can get them back because you changed the rules. Okay, that didn't work out very well. But it, it really talks to the confusion I had growing up. But here's what I love about this. And here's what um, Rabbi Shapiro does in his book so well. You know, what does it mean to have a guide to being a blessing to all the peoples of the earth? What does that mean? See, that's what he's talking about here. What does that mean? And what does it take for us to be able to do that? What kind of wisdom does it take? Does it take a kid like me growing up in the Bronx, walking into a priest and like saying, I want you to put them back in my bank account? Is that what it takes? Or does it take something else? Does it take us to learn more? Today, joining me is somebody that brings a powerful, powerful message. But this is, this is a message that probably for him, he probably bumped up against some of the same walls I grew up with. Unorthodox, yeah. Maybe moms and dads that probably looked at them and said, wow, you can't kick her out of Catholic boarding school. She really did have that conversation with Jesus. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was something else. But here's where we are today. He is the author of many, many books, award-winning, best-selling books, biblical tra <laughs> translations. I, can't, I wish I could talk to him about those. But there's so much more. And today, this is the message for today. This is, by the way, I'm going to hold it up there. Micah, can you all see that? And I think, Micah, you're going to be putting this up on our, our social media. But this is the message. What does it mean to have this in my hand, a guide to being a blessing to all the peoples of the earth? Rabbi Shapiro, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's great to have you. Well, Pat, it's a delight to be here. Um, many things I learned as a child that I don't think I was according to the plan of the religion that I was born into. Unorthodox is the word you use. Rebellious is probably fits me a little bit, little bit better because I just didn't behave very well about these things. But here's the question. How can we, right? And this is gonna be my question really from the book. How can we bring this message forward and be less divided? Yeah, that is the question. <laughs> and I think the answer is to grow beyond your religion. That, you know, I make a distinction between uh, tribe and tribalism. And I make a distinction between spirituality and religion. And, and they're basically the same distinction. I, I belong, I'm a Jew. I belong to a Jewish tribe. Yeah. If you identify as Catholic, you belong to the Catholic tribe. And the tribe has its own customs and its own, I mean, in Judaism, it's a, it's a multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, gathering of people who are tied together by a common story, which is a story and not history. Uh, and, and you could find something similar in, in every religion, most likely. Tribalism is when you imagine that your tribe is the best tribe, the superior tribe. You know, when, uh, when, when the Hebrew Bible says that uh, God chose the Jews from among all the peoples of the earth, that's tribalism. 
especially if you take it literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, when certain kinds of Christians say that uh, only there, you can only get to, you know, like Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Yep. And then they say there's no salvation outside the church. Or the Southern Baptist Convention used to say only Southern Baptists get to go to heaven. That's <laughs> tribalism. It's silly. And most people, when they think about it, know it's silly. But they're afraid to say the emperor has no clothes. Mm-hmm. And so rather than do that, they just put their heads down and, and follow whatever rules they're told. What you're talking about requires a transformation of consciousness. And, you know, the book is called Judaism Without Tribalism. Yeah. And then the subtitle is Being a Blessing to All the uh, with peoples of the earth, the yes. actual, that's not my subtitle. I know, and, believe me, I know what the publishers do. <laughs> yeah, in, in um, the Bible itself, it's a quote from Genesis chapter 12, verse three, where <clears throat> Abraham and Sarah, though they're not called that then, but Abraham and Sarah are called to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And it doesn't say human families, peoples implies humans. Yeah. It says all the families of the earth We need a new consciousness that recognizes we're all part of one, I don't know what you want to call it, bio family, environmental family, you know, whatever the language might be. But the universe is one immense, vibrant family of beings, all of whom are a part of a greater reality that you you can call it God, you can call it whatever you want to call it. Uh, And different religions have different names for it but it's a non-dual reality. It's not a God outside of nature. It's a God who embraces and transcends nature. It's a God who manifests as you and me and the, the plants behind you and the, you know, the, the antelope and the deer and the worms and everything is a manifesting of the divine. And to realize that requires a shift in consciousness. And it's something that, I don't know if it's hard to do, but it's something that most people aren't eager to do necessarily. Yeah. I, I mean, I have to talk about a couple of things in the book as I was reading through it. Um, I love that you have in here a, a chapter, and it's right at the beginning, um, religion at its best. I think that's what you call it, religion at its best. Um, and, and the reason that that I love that you did this because it reflected uh, it, it it had me reflect on being a six year old in Catholic boarding school. It's unheard of to put a six year old in Catholic. I think my dad my dad paid them off right because my mom was not well, and I had an experience in that school. I mean, I really did. I was sitting there over a weekend and I looked up at the ninth station of the cross with all the nuns, just me, this little kid. And I heard a voice say something like, don't worry, your mom is with me. And I pull on Sister Michael Anthony and I say, hey, that's what I heard him say that. Okay. So she grabs me by the ear and the hair and we just run and she's looking for Mother Superior. And you walk into Mother Superior and her head is down. You can imagine what this looks like, right? Old school, the old school habits, right? Um, Her head is down and she lifts her eyes up and she's got tears coming. She has a note. My mom had passed away. Now, you would think that an experience like that 
would have been great. I mean, it wasn't. I had violated a rule. My dad and my two soon-to-be stepmom had to come immediately. I had to take back that I actually heard that. Now, why am I sharing this? Because on the one hand, we hear that God, Jesus, Ba'a'u'llah, Allah, whatever that is, we hear it's available and accessible. But then on the other hand, we have these rules. How do the rules get in the way of religion being at its best? Yeah, so your story is amazing. And it illustrates one. I got kicked out of school. I'm just saying. <laughs> I got kicked out of Catholic boarding school because Here's... my soon-to-be stepmom was like a, a, a independent Baptist, and she was like, "No, she's not taking it back." So they kicked me out. Thank goodness. Well, here's here's the the thing: religions are afraid of mystics. A mystic is someone who has or desires to have a direct encounter with the divine, however you define it. And religions are not made for that. Now, there are mystics within every religious tradition, but they're usually on the fringes and oftentimes at odds with the authorities, the religious authorities. And the reason that's the case is because the, the mystic knows through her experience that the patriarchy and the hierarchy of the various religions and the rules that they turn into idols, really, are just the creation of men. I don't mean mankind, I mean men, actual men, uh, who are looking to control and to, to maximize their control and their power over other human beings. That's why little kids and mystics are so dangerous <laughs> to, to religion, because they don't play that game and they're not intimidated. Now, little kids can be intimidated, but a true mystic, someone who has a direct experience of divine reality, isn't going to be shaken when the Pope or the, the chief rabbis in Israel or the Ayatollah or anyone else, regardless of how high their status is, says, no, you're wrong. That's not how it works. Because you had an experience. You can't, you're not doubting your experience. I mean, you should always be somewhat skeptical about your own experience. You can be tricked, you can be fooled, you can be misled. But when you have the experience you described, and someone says, no, you can't have that experience. Well, it's too late. The toothpaste is out of the tube and <laughs> you're not, you can't go backwards. And so what, what religions try to do, and they're not going to do it overtly, like they have a big sign saying no mystics allowed, but what they're, what they try to do is to minimize uh, the mystic tendency that is natural to people, but you can educate people out of it. You can scare them out of it. And and, and that's religion at its worst. Religion at its best, you know, the word uh, religion comes from religare, and it means to unite. Yeah. Now, it doesn't just mean to unite within a specific religious tradition. It means to unite. The, to, to me, it's the realization that the entire universe is one being. It's always united. But it's to, to erase your, the delusion of separateness that dominates the egoic mind. And so it unites you with the whole, even though when you get united, you realize you were never disunited. But in any case, that's what, that's what religion at its best is. And because people are different, we have different languages, different cultures, you can find different ways to experience the union of everything. 
and some will work for you better than others. So, you know, if you're raised in a Hindu tradition, you know, jumping on the Southern Baptist Convention bandwagon may not do it for you. But there are Hindu mystics who have methodologies to help you realize the truth of your own being. And that's true in every religious tradition. But mystics, as opposed to clerics, you know, the, the priest, the rabbi, the rest of it, uh, mystics always get along with one another. In, in 1984, I was lucky enough to be tapped by Father Thomas Keating, oh. uh, who's a phenomenal, was a phenomenal yeah. Catholic priest, yeah. who, along with Father Basil Pennington, uh, created the centering prayer movement in, in Catholicism, but now it's in Christianity in general. And he started, Father Thomas started this 35-year experiment, bringing 12 mystics together from 12 different traditions to live in his monastery for a week at a time and just experience one another's presence and to have conversations about uh, spirituality, I guess. And I didn't go all 35 years. I went for the first few and then checked in periodically. But what I discovered in the very first one in 1984 was that regardless of the label you wore or the clothes that defined you, whether you were a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Quaker, a Native American, Jewish, um, uh, Orthodox Christian, it didn't make a difference. While the methodologies each of us employed to experience the truth of non-duality or what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, regardless of the methodologies we use, the experience was the same. A, a melting of the, the isolated ego into the oceanic one uh, out of which all things arise and return. And once, you, once we got that realization from one another, uh, I mean, there was nothing to argue about. You were now curious. Okay, how did you do that? And what, how, how is your text different from my text in a way that I can learn from your, you know, but it wasn't like, oh, you're different, you're bad. And, but you're talking about mystics. And so you're talking about people with an altered state of consciousness. That is not the norm. Religion at its best tries to bring you to that mystic consciousness, that mystic awareness. Religion, as most of it, most of us experience it, is all about putting you in separate silos Mm. and keeping you there. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Because, you know, out of the gate in your book, uh, I will, I so loved Went back and read it again. Of course, it's on my favorite numerology page 11 in the area where you talk about God and gods, because that experience as a young child and having a mom, a stepmom, I didn't know she was going to become my stepmom because my mom actually did commit suicide. That was a real thing that happened. Uh, And of course, you know, I mean, A, B, C, D, right? We now know like, okay, how could she be? How could she be with Jesus if she committed suicide? That's like not a thing. But what I love about this, and I was so excited to talk with you because it changed the trajectory of my life. And and so did my stepmom. Now, coming from a Southern Baptist environment, she had her own version of things. And her own version of things with the way you describe it in the book. And and I just want to, I want to read this to everybody. So you say, God, as I use the word, refers not to any tribal deity or to any named God, but to the greater reality manifesting in 
with and as all being. God is not a noun, but a verb. As a verb, God cannot be owned by any tribe or authority, but as a noun, God is always owned. I mean, I had to read that because you set the stage right out of the gate for the rest of the book. I had to read it because I grew up with this mom, this woman that literally believed what you wrote, but I didn't have the words that you put in here. And what a sense of freedom. Now, I have to tell you, I have been called by multiple past religions that I've been affiliated with a spiritual hitchhiker. I now know that's a compliment. Okay, right? But there are so many people that struggle with these labels. And I think what you're saying in your book, really, at least my interpretation is the labels truly hold us back from connecting with the divine. Yeah. Is that yeah. true? Did I make I, that I up or true. how close am I? <laughs> I, I think that's 100% true. I don't think, I mean, this sounds a little harsh, but I'll unpack it. Yeah. I don't think a Jew, a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu, an atheist, a, you know, whatever the label Christian is, uh, the label you want to use, none of those labeled individuals experiences the divine reality that is that I've experienced. And the reason for that is, is that as you awaken to that reality, all of your adjectives fall away. You know, you're no longer Jew, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, etc. You're no longer male or female. You're, you're no longer cis or trans. You're, you're nothing but an expression of the divine. So, you, so we need a metaphor for this. And I love the Hindu metaphor of the ocean and the wave. Yeah. So think of the divine as an infinite ocean. And it just of its own nature, it waves and, and its waves are everything that, that you and I can see in existence. And now that we've got the, the web telescope, we can look back, you know, <laughs> billions and billions and billions of years and see all these manifestings of the divine. It's all God, whether it's good, whether you like it or you don't like it, you see, you'd say it's good or it's bad or, you know, all those things. It's all God, because as the Hebrew Bible says, there is nothing else. Mm. There's only, there's only God. But what we do, and you, you mentioned it, so let me, if you don't mind, let me just unpack it. When I say God is Please. a verb, I mean, God is a verb because God is dynamic. But in the Hebrew Bible, which is, you know, the first, uh, the, the Old Testament in right. Christian tradition, the name of God that, that is used is the unpronounceable, you know, Y-H-V-H in some Bibles, yod heh vav heh in Hebrew. But the name of God is a verb. And because it's literally untranslatable, unpronounceable, you the rabbis thousands of years ago came up with a euphemism. They came up with multiple euphemisms. But one was Adonai, which means Lord. And yeah. that's the one that stuck. Not surprisingly, because Lord is masculine. Lord is hierarchical. The people who came up with it were men in a hierarchy patriarchy so that's the one that that stuck though not necessarily among the mystics but when you pick up the uh, an english bible and you see the word lord you know capital l capital o capital r capital b you're not getting the real sense of the text the text gives you in, in the original hebrew <clears throat> these four <clears throat> letters they come from the hebrew verb to be it's a verb it's <clears throat> It's the, the verb to be in the third person uh, 
uh, future imperfect means it's just it's just an ongoing happening yeah. of all reality and you can't own it you can't name it that's why it's ineffable but once you put a tag on it you say it's lord or you say it's krishna or you say it's uh jesus or you say it's you know allah once you put a label on it then you can own it then it becomes an object for your, for veneration but also for manipulation and ultimately if you if you read the text in exodus where god uh, is said to reveal the nature of the divine the first thing that god uh, says is ehia ehia asher ehia which usually we translate as i am what i am or i'm exactly I'm i was just gonna say but it's again a verb and, yep. and it's there's no am there's no first person present <clears throat> in in hebrew so it's like eyeing eyeing forever eyeing it's what in the hindu tradition you'd call the the eternal subject that is that is everything that can see everything but nothing but it can't see itself because it is itself so it's the i am of ramana maharshi or nasargadatta maharaj or the other advaita um, non-dual vedanta hindu teachers I mean, it's this powerful, powerful statement that is absolutely ruined when we turn God into an object of worship. God is the subject. You know, Meister Eckhart says, the eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. There's only one eye, and that's true when we're talking about the capital letter I. But in a sense, it's also true of, of the, 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 the eye I'm, I'm looking out of now. Right. There's only one, because there's, there's just this, this unbelievably... I mean, it's infinite and non-dual and dynamic subject happening as everything else. So God knows you and I the way I know my fingers. It's just an extension of who I am. Uh, and again, that you can't build a religion around that. No. And, you know, we're going to talk about this when we come back from break, because, you know, we are now seeing language. And I'm just going to make this statement. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the we're going to talk about the many, many other things in here in the book. I'm a kid from the Bronx. I grew up in New York City. We are multicultural, multi-spiritual environment, even in small places, you know, even in places that you go as this kid growing up in an environment where you, you don't really have those prejudices that comes later, but you know like where to go to get what and there's this level that you have i think as kids where you see all these different things prior prior to the restraint of judgment and you see them and your friends are these right i mean even in my own personal journey you know being in a relationship with somebody that was jewish and not understanding certain things you go to <laughs> You go to some of the spiritual happenings and you drink in too much wine because nobody tells you you're going to drink that wine like 10 times at the dinner table, right? You drink it like you're an Italian. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about language. We're going to talk about how the words get on paper. And we're going to talk about why is it you hear Sarah Main do her show on ancient Sanskrit, the real ancient Sanskrit, the real, 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 real translations. She is an expert in it. And why is it 
that people like me can wear a bracelet that has Sanskrit on it and people or a necklace that I wear all the time and people will make a judgment about that. They will look at it. They will frown upon it. They will decide who I am. They will decide what I believe in by a bracelet that has two words in Sanskrit on it. These are the things that divide us. When we come back, Rabbi Shapiro is going to walk us through this incredible book. Everything is in here. Everything about Judaism, tribalism, joy, grief, death. But we're going to talk about the way we walk when we come back and what the opening and invitation is for all of you. Um, what is the best way for people to find out about you, um, Rabbi Shapiro? And what is the best way for them to get a copy of the book? Well, the best way to get a copy of the book is to go to your local independent bookstore. Uh, and if they don't have it, they can order it. If that doesn't work for you, then you can go on Amazon and, and get it that way. So it's readily available. You can reach me or, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I, I have two websites. One is www.rabbirami, R-A-B-B-I-R-A-M-I.com. And then my business website is um, uh www.oneriverfoundation, O-N-E, River Foundation, all one word, dot org. So either yeah. website will work and certainly you can get the book locally. Lots really of great, great messaging and information, everybody. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at the way we walk. What does that mean? Do we actually have a choice? Do you feel like you have a choice? Do you feel like you can do that? And what happens if you're somebody like me that gets into a 12-step program, a recovery program, and has a sponsor that works with three people at one time, a Christian, a Muslim, and me. What does that look like, and what do you learn from that experience? Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Are you passionate about impacting social change or working towards anti-racism as a society? Are you willing to deconstruct your innermost thoughts, ideas, and beliefs about racism? Then Inflection Point Podcast, Cultivating Change from the Inside Out, is the show for you. Join Anita Russell, Mavis Bauman, and Gail Hunter in open, honest, and deliberate conversations every first and third Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, only on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Tune in to Maximum Resilience with me, Kelly Bazzani, your ally for addiction, the first Monday of each month at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Join us and engage in this epic journey of how to own your power and change your perception of addiction while we revolutionize the approach that ensures mental health as we address a worldwide epidemic. Take the steps that lead you towards an incredible life of maximum resilience. We do recover. Visit MyResiliencecoach.com. Do you question what an authentic life really looks like? Tune in to The Alley Effect with Allison Blythe, authentically living life your way. Every first and third Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com, where Allison Blythe brings you tools, resources, and actionable steps toward your very best life. Take responsibility for your own happiness. For more about Allison, visit Allison, A-L-L-Y-S-O-N, Blythe, 
B-L-Y-T-H-E.com. Are you struggling with truly being happy in life? Do you often question who you really are? I'm Tracy Lynn Wallace, a self-love mentor and life coach who can help you identify and access subconscious blocks to move you into a place of freedom, success, and happiness. Visit inspiredwisdomcoaching.com to sign up for my VIP list and get updates on my exclusive workshops so you can awaken your magic within. That's inspiredwisdomcoaching.com. Are you ready to branch out? Take a leap of faith. Tune in to Get Rooted Radio with Erica Gifford-Mills on TransformationTalkRadio.com to equip, empower, and enlighten yourself. Erica will energize and excite you to power up your passionate dream that sets your soul on fire. So get fearlessly ready and get powerfully rooted in your yes to live it up, love it up, and let it go. Visit GetRootedRadio.com. Tune in to Knowledge Book Radio with host Marge Potasek, the fourth Tuesday each month at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Through many experiences, Marge was led to the Knowledge Book, a gift to humanity in its transition to the golden age that provides truth and answers. She now shares information from the Knowledge Book with you monthly on TransformationTalkRadio.com on Knowledge Book Radio. For more information, visit USA.TheKnowledgeBook.net. Hey, everybody, welcome back. It's so great. What we're talking about, Judaism without tribalism, a guide to being blessing to all the peoples of the earth with Rabbi Rami Shapiro. And by the way, fabulous book. Um, everything is covered in here. And there's so much in here that, um, you know, I just want to say to everybody that we're going to get to some of it, but get your own copy of the book. And Benny, by the way, I'd like to give away two copies of the book if we could right now. 1-800-930-2819. Benny, say hi to Benny. Um, Lots in the book. Everything from talking about world healers. See, that's like world healers. That's like, that's not like world healer in a tribe it's like about healers everything is in here and as you go through it you also start to appreciate the days of reflection we start to look at these days you know what is rosh hashanah what does that mean what what is that days of reflection mean and how do these days show up across the board are there similarities are there differences and you know when we look at this one of the things that i love about this is we're not leaving out the part of the journey, right? Rabbi Shapiro, Rabbi Shapiro puts in here, part of the journey about joy and grief. I love that. He puts them in both in the same chapter, joy and grief, because all of this contributes to what we're going to talk about now. Given reminders, given joy and grief. I want to ask you this, Rabbi Shapiro, does it all point to and boil down to the way we choose to walk. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, joy and grief are sort of built into the system. Right? You can't really, you can't live regardless of how you walk. You're going to walk in a world of joy and grief uh, because those are two responses to whatever is happening to you. I mean, oh boy, are they? You know, someone may experience X and find it incredibly joyful and someone else coming from some other, you know, psychological space, can have the same experience and find it very, you know, uh, an aggrieving experience. So I think we have to just realize that life isn't 
one thing or the other. It's just everything. There's a, a wonderful in um, Qigong, which is a <laughs> Chinese you know, healing movement practice. Yeah. There's a stance that comes from Taoism. You're standing with your, your, your erect, your feet are slightly, you know, uh, hips width apart, whatever. And your hands are held like this. I mean, I'm sitting in a chair. This is not the way to do it. But your hands are, are held out, palms up. And the, the stance is called monk begging for rice. And the idea is the monk is, can't sustain uh, themselves. So they have to beg for rice. And what you get in the Taoist phrasing you get the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of everyday living. And, and you're going to have to sustain yourself with that. And you can't avoid one or the other. You can deny them. You can, you can, you know, reject joy and you can flee from sorrow, but you're going to get them anyway. So it's a question of more, more our understanding of what reality is than choosing one posture over another. I mean, it's a little confusing. I, I have a problem with free will. I'm not sure that we have absolute free will. I think that we, we are the product of, you know, billions upon billions of, of prior events that create the situation in which we find ourselves. And I don't know if I'm really free to choose one way or the other, because there's just so many dimensions to me that I don't know. Yeah, I'm I with you 100 you know, million percent say. on that one. Thank you. Thank you for giving me permission to feel like a pariah <laughs> in that conversation. There you go. Right? Because <laughs> confusing is a cop out. So let me just say that. I, I don't think I'm confused. I think I'm, I'm kind of landing where you are. Yeah, it's just a matter of not knowing. I think there's got to be a fundamental humility about your experience in life. You just don't yeah. know. But you can stay open to whatever it is, and you can, uh, and this maybe you could say is is choice. I don't. I, I I'm not going to argue one way or the other. But the, <laughs> but the language implies what it implies. So, you know, so you get the sorrows, you get the joys. If you realize that it's all from the same divine source, and of which you yourself are a part, then the resistance to whatever it is dissipates. And you're simply present to it. And, you know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, he says to everything, there is a time, a purpose to everything under him. And, you know, then he goes through a whole list of things, a time to, uh, to, uh, for birth, a time for death, a time for building, a time for tearing down, a time for joy, a time for crying, you know, all, all these things. And the idea is you have to know what time it is in your life. And if it's crying time and your friends or family say, stop crying already, get over your grief, go out, be happy, whatever, you know, and it's still crying time for you, then you should cry. You have to be true to your own moment. And, and if that's the way you walk through the world, being true to your own moment, then I think you make room for everyone else to be true to their own moments. And there's a sense of shared uh, reality, because we both know joy and sorrow. And so, okay, I get where you're at. And if I can alleviate some of the sorrow, that'd be wonderful. If I can just be present with you, if, if that helps, that that's what I can do. Uh, but, but it's not about I'm in control. You know, there are some religions, some spirituality teachers, new age teachers who say, it's, it's your mind creates your own reality. 
And if you're sad, it's because you're creating sadness. And if you're depressed, it's your fault. And if you get cancer, it's your fault. And, you know, all of this. I don't think that's true. Mm. I don't think that's true because I don't fundamentally, I don't think there's a you. I think it's all God happening. Mm. And, yeah. you know, you can just glom on to some piece and say, oh, that's me. But in fact, it's, it's all God in, in the cosmic, you know, in that mm-hmm. larger absolute dimension. So, the, again, for me, the idea is just to be present to whatever the reality yeah. is at the moment, knowing it's going to shift eventually. You know, I'm fascinated. State of flux. I'm fascinated by this. And it just a question just hit me, you know, because I mean, I, how, what is it like to be you, Rabbi Shapiro, right? Knowing the traditions and perhaps tribalisms of the Jewish traditions. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I know what it's like to be me and growing up like with Catholic and like a couple of different Baptist things going on there and then deciding that I'm not going to be part of that tribe and not going to be part of that tribe. I know what I went through with that. And I made some decisions. Okay, so like about 30 years ago, I made some decisions that I just needed to try a whole bunch of things out. And it was being in a relationship with someone uh, that was Jewish, that helped me understand, oh, wait a minute, I'm learning some things I'd never learned before. But this is your path. This is your journey. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say a couple of things. Sure. I mean, first, I have no idea what it's like to be me. (laughs) because I don't even know who me is, right? I mean, if I say, what's it like to be a Jewish guy who discovered, you know, who was introduced to Buddhism and Hinduism in in 11th grade high school, I I know what that guy went through. But the observer me, the me that just looks out, I I can't make an object out of that. So I don't know what it's like. It's just there. (laughs) But my, my, you know, Rami's experience, I grew up in an Orthodox home. Uh, when I was 16, I was introduced by two um, high school teachers who had spent a summer in India. They came back and they started teaching Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism. And, and I fell in love with Zen at the time. And I went, got a Zen teacher. You know, I went through this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I'm, I'm 71. And this was a long time ago. And in, in the intervening time, I had Hindu teachers and Sufi teachers and I, I love religion. I mean, you can see my background if you can, if you, yeah. if you can have Zoom. I have stuff from every religion. I have the sacred texts of every religion on my shelves. I find them all incredibly valuable. Hmm. Now, that makes you, that makes, made me a heretic, you know, um, not just when I was younger, but, you know, just in the last couple of days, right? So, I mean, I, I was doing some Zoom thing at a synagogue and uh, people left because I have the crucifix over my, you know, what's the, my left shoulder, right? And they were they were offended. The Om didn't bother them. The Japanese Zen stuff right. didn't bother them. If I leaned over, the the uh, Bismillah from Islam didn't bother them. But the crucifix triggered them in such a way that they had to get away. That somehow I was tainted because I was honoring that tradition now you i don't know if you can see the crucifix carefully yes i can see it it's uh, not yep. it's not a standard crucifix actually it's mary on the cross holding 
holding Jesus, <laughs> sort of a uh, paeta kind of thing on the cross. And it was, it was a gift from um, uh, on an interfaith trip that I took to Israel mm-hmm. in Palestine. And uh, the idea is it's the divine mothers being crucified. Uh, because I think that's I think that's changing now, but I think that's been the history of the last couple mm-hmm. thousand years in the Western traditions, that the divine feminine is is lost to us. And though I think she's making a comeback. Yeah, um, I'm hoping that. I'm yeah, I'm, well, I'm think, really sitting can, there with you. Yeah, I think you can see that in mm-hmm. in the return of the divine feminine in lots of different traditions and in people's independent experience of the divine mother. Uh, I mean I've I've experienced her uh multiple times so anyway i think i'm way off track no you're not you're right there because that is really the conversation that we're having today because i think this is the more we can talk about this is the more we we can show people that there are ways now i just got a text message question that came in from one of our listeners and i'll i'll answer it uh, but I think you answered it for me. And it was it's a question because I made reference to a Sanskrit bracelet I have That's right. and that I wear. And so the question that came in, and for those of you there, I'm going to try to hold this up. I don't know if we can get it in the camera. I don't know if you can see it. Um, but the, this is Sanskrit and it is pure love. And it's beaten up pretty bad because I don't take it off. I play my sport with it, so it gets beat up. So the question is, what was your first involvement? I had to think about this, but here it is. When I was homeless on the streets of New York City, and I'm 17, and I got booted out because of who I was. And I'm homeless on the streets. I had so many different, let's call them angels for lack of a better words. I had a lot of I am energy that helped me. But the one group that saw me dirty and, I mean, come on, right? You know what I'm talking about. We knew them back then. They were on the corners in white and they had the tambourines, right? And they had beautiful mantras. And all day long, day and night, that's what they would do. And I took one look at them and I saw clean clothes. If I joined them, this is me, right? Because you're homeless, you're not, you know, no food, no water, you know what you do. And I looked at them, and I was drawn to them. It was my first experience. We knew them, and the people joke about the Krishna consciousness, the Hare Krishna, they joke about it. But I'm 17. I didn't know anything like that. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to reach out to them. See, at moments of desperation, what I call godding is when godding, it's like the, the, not the noun of God, but when godding happens, things like that show up. And that was my first interaction to answer, um, to answer, Mary, thank you for your question on my phone. That was my first engagement in an experience of learning about something with language I couldn't even pronounce, but I felt so cared for. And I think at 17, you don't lose that. See, isn't that what you're talking about here? Isn't that when you take the tribe out of the picture, 
It's when you take the tribalism out of the picture. Tribalism out of the picture. I mean, Krishna followers are, are a tribe, you could say. but They, they totally they are. <laughs> but they don't have to be tribalistic. Exactly. Um, although some probably are. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I, this is not exactly to your situation, but just to talk about yeah. the, the, the power of what you, I'm, I'm reading into it, what you may have experienced. No, it's powerful. So, so the, the clean clothes um, is one thing, but... I mean, I've spent a lot of time with Krishna people. Um, the mantra yeah. is, is so powerful. There, is, there are a lot of mystics at the moment who say that the work of this time, the spiritual work of this time, is uh, mantra chanting. Um, not exclusively necessary to the Divine Mother. Hare Krishna is not to the Divine Mother, it's to Krishna. But um, the, the chanting itself is... I mean, you can't chant wrong, right? You know, you could be off key, but <laughs> you might mispronounce the words, but you really, yeah. you really can't make a mistake. Whereas so many other rituals, you can get, you can get them wrong. There's so many details. Chanting is just something that happens that you, I think most people naturally fall into. And, and you start out as a chanter, as a baby, it's baby babbling. You know, and then we put words to it, uh, and then we add meaning to it. But there's something intrinsic when you were, you know, before you had language, you still spoke in a sense, you made sound, you made what the Bible calls a joyful noise, right? And it, 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 it was spontaneous. And what mantra does, and I'm talking about out loud mantra, though, yeah. you can do silently too. Uh, but what mantra does is it invites you, like Jesus says, to be like a little child. And to just sing uh, these these phrases uh, That's in incredible. community, and the, the power of that That's is incredible. is amazing. Whether you're talking about Hare Krishna or Teze in, yeah. in Christianity, or you know chanting in in other traditions, every tradition has its version of chanting. And and I, and I, I want to make it clear: I'm talking about chanting, not camp songs. No, no, right. chanting. Right? There, yeah. There's a chanting thing that, yeah. that every tradition has. Um, and that's very, very compelling to lots of us and very, very liberating. Yeah. Because when you're engaged in that chant, the other chant that the ego always deals with, I, me, mine, all the judgmental stuff, you can't chant two chants at once. So if you're chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Rama, then um, that I, me, mine chant disappears. Mm -hmm for at least a bit, and yeah. you experience this other level of, of expanded consciousness. I totally agree. I actually think that my experience, and first of all, being on the corner they were on, I don't even recollect how that happened, um, but being able to reach out and ask them for help, because I had asked others for help, and I didn't get it. I couldn't get in the why. But there was something about that moment that day where I was so drawn to it. And I remember this like it was yesterday. And I remember trying to, to be there with them chanting the mantra. I think that my experience, albeit was brief, and I think my experience being homeless was brief because of my experience with them, because something changed in me. I can't even explain it to you. But understanding and have them take me in so to speak and have me willingly be part of this energy and this life force my next choices that i made i believe 
moved me out of that homeless state quicker than I would have been able to do otherwise. I really believe that. And I didn't understand it, but I knew I felt better. Yeah, I, I knew I felt one, one, how do I know my spiritual practice is working? Well, one <laughs> way is it makes you feel better. No kidding, right? right? Another yeah. way is it makes you act more kind and compassionate toward other beings. Uh, it, it's not rocket science. You can actually measure, am I more generous, more compassionate, more f- filled with gratitude than I was before I started this practice? If the answer is no, if the practice is making me stingy and snarly and a xenophobic, that's a bad practice. If you go to church, synagogue, or anywhere else, and you're told that there's the enemy out there, get the hell out of that building. Right, right. But if you're told, you know, like the Bible says a million times, you know, love your neighbor, and then love the stranger, and Jesus says, love your enemy. If that's what you're being taught, and you're taught how to do it, so it's not just a platitude, you know, then maybe there's something you have to learn, you can learn there. But so much of religion is about identifying an enemy and then getting rid of the enemy. And, and yeah. I, I think that's just getting worse. Lately. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is getting worse. And I and I, and we see it now playing in, in in just not just in our everyday life, but we're seeing it play out in governments and we're seeing it play out where, you know, there is a dominant tribe. And that dominant tribe is like we are the one. And we I mean, honestly, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that there are more than just that one. We Really, unless you are living under a rock. But, you know, what you're talking about in this book is allowing us to open our hearts and open our minds and to really gather the power and the experience of so much of the teachings. I mean, teachings without tribalism. I mean, imagine that. So I wanted to thank you for that today. Thank you for joining us here today. Again, please tell people how they can find out about you and how they can uh, get copy, uh, get, buy a copy of your book. And by the way, we've given away the two copies. They went quick. How do we well, find out more about you? And thank you so much for today. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Pat. Uh, my website's rabbirami.com and oneriverfoundation.org. And you can find the book through an independent bookstore. Or if, uh, you know, chain store works, probably. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're probably independently, they employ local people. (laughs) Uh, And then Amazon. There's always, there's always Amazon. This has been a real, real pleasure, Pat. Thank you. Yes. And there's so much more in here uh, in the book. Thank you. One last question. What's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with today? You know, the only thing I didn't say, just in the last thing we're talking about, with religion, you know, if your religion makes you crabby and cranky, <laughs> if your God needs guns, that's not God. Yeah. Let's leave that out there. Yeah, that's. I don't, I don't know why God would need guns. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 